The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. I'm going to read this morning beginning in verse 7 down through verse 11. James writes, Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early rains and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray together. Christ Jesus, we do bow before You. We do look to You this morning and recognize You as the sure and steady anchor of our hope. In fact, we have no hope apart from You. When life is good, You are our hope. When life is, is just sort of rolling along in a rut, You are our only hope. And when the, the winds and waves are crashing, You are our only hope. And so as we turn our attention this morning to your word and we begin to think through what it means to look to you in suffering, to find you as an anchor for our souls, open our eyes that we might see, open our ears that we might hear you speak, draw us to yourself and change us by the encounter, we pray for your sake. Amen. In James chapter 5, James brings us back around to a theme that he introduced to us all the way back in chapter 1. You may remember, if you were here when we began all of this, James chapter 1, one of the first things James said to us, in fact, the very first thing he said to us after his initial greeting was verse 2 of chapter 1, where he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, so on and so forth. Count it all joy when you meet all sorts of trials, all sorts of troubles, all sorts of pain, all sorts of grief, and all sorts of suffering. James began there, and as we come to the end of chapter 5, James wants to bring us back once again to that issue. He introduced to us the idea that trials and trouble and suffering are the reality of the life of every single believer. That all of us, at some point in our lives, in our life experience, if you were to sort of stretch out our entire life on a timeline, you would see that in all of our lives, speckled, or the the word James uses there in in chapter 1 verse 2 is a word related to polka dot, that we get the word polka dot from, the idea of, of speckled with various sizes and shapes of trials and troubles and pains and suffering. That is the reality of our lives, despite what some may 
share when they share the gospel of Christ and tell people that if you just receive Jesus, your life is going to be a cakewalk, a bed of roses. Christ is going to make everything good and easy. That's not true. The truth is life is painful and life is hard. And all of our lives, uh, particularly those who belong to Christ, are going to be speckled and polka dotted and marked by trials and trouble and pain and suffering of various sorts. Coming to Christ does not eliminate such things. Christ does not make those things go away. He promises to walk with us and be with us and equip us through the midst of them. And that is what it is to walk with Christ. And James talked to us about that in the very beginning. And as he sort of circles back to this issue in chapter 5, he comes all the way back around and he now wants to talk to us about one particular sort of manifestation of trials and trouble, and that being the, the issue of suffering, the particular kind of trouble that we call suffering. Suffering comes at us in all different ways, in all sorts of shapes, forms, and fashions. But James, I think here, has in mind particularly... Uh, What was introduced at the beginning of chapter 5, if you were with us when we looked at verses 1 through 6, it was a stunning text where James lays out this sort of blast from his mouth of of a rebuke against the wealthy, rich people of his day. And he just lays into them in verses 1 through 6 for their luxuriant lifestyles, for their wasted resources, and for the fact that they are, that they are causing deep, painful suffering in other people's lives in order to uh, pad their bank accounts. That the other people are suffering so that they can get rich. Other people are, are hungry and have very little, and in some cases dying, so that the wealthy can mound up mounds of things that they don't even use. The moths eat them, and the rust eats it away, and so on and so forth. And so he rebukes these folks who are living like that, and he turns right around, and he then it's as though he turns his attention from them to those who are suffering at their hands. It says, now, I'm going to rebuke you for what you're doing, causing pain to these dear brothers. And now he turns and says, brothers, here's how you need to live and respond to the suffering that is unjust and being brought into your lives by the sinful actions of these others. You notice that he's changing directions because in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, come now, you rich. And in verse 7, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers. He turns his attention to a different audience, to the brothers. These dear brothers who are suffering in some ways very, very severely at the hands of others. And James wants to equip them in the midst of the suffering. He wants them to know what godly suffering looks like. He wants them to know what it looks like to to go through the middle of the blast of the storm and to do it in a way that honors Christ and reflects a godly, Christ-centered heart. And so in this text before us, verses 7 through 11, he gives them some characteristics of a godly response to suffering. Some characteristics of a godly response to suffering. But it's not just the characteristics that he lays out. He lays out also a theological foundation for living out those characteristics. And this is the piece that we want to concern ourselves with primarily this morning, because if we don't understand the foundation that James lays, we'll never be able to live out the characteristics that he describes. He's going to tell them characteristically that what it looks like when godly people go through the blast of the storm of suffering, it looks like being patient. 
It looks like being steadfast and immovable and staying the course on what is right in spite of the suffering around us. It looks like a life that is marked by joy and contentment and not grumbling and complaining. And you and I know that those are characteristics that are opposite what comes natural to us when we suffer. And to just come out and launch into a sermon that says, here's how you live godly when you suffer. Just be patient. Just hang on. Just endure steadfastly. Don't give up. And by the way, don't grumble. I might as well tell you, walk outside and lasso the sun and bring it to the earth. You can't possibly do that in your own strength. It doesn't come natural. We're not naturally equipped to live that way in the midst of suffering. Our only hope is that Christ would do something in us, in the suffering, that would equip us to live in a way that doesn't come natural and isn't within our normal ability to do. And He does that through what we believe. He does that through what we believe. And James talks in this text about one particular piece of theological understanding that is a critical piece to the foundation of being able to live godly through suffering. And I want you to look back at our text at the very beginning and you'll see it. Be patient therefore, brothers, until, say this part with me, the coming of the Lord. He goes down a little further. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. That means stay the course. Hunker down. Do what's right. Keep the course. Don't be deterred because suffering has come. Why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. A little further down in the text, he says, Hey, don't grumble. Because, you know, when you grumble against your brothers and you grumble, it's a form of judgment. And I've already talked to you about what it means to judge other people. And you need to not do that because there's a theological reason why you don't want to do that. Because the judge, the judge, is what? He's standing at the door. You see, the foundation that these folks need to understand before they can ever live out the godly characteristics through the suffering is that there is a Christ who's real. He is both merciful and patient. And He is coming back. That is the most important thing James needs to, I mean, James needs to remind these suffering believers. He needs them to remember in the middle of their suffering, you can be patient because Christ is coming back. You can endure and hang on and keep the course and remain faithful because the Lord is coming back. You can navigate through suffering and pain with joy and contentment and not grumble and not complain and not lash out at everybody around you because the Lord is coming back. It seems to me that James is laying out a reality that our understanding and our mindfulness of the return of Christ is the foundational key to being able to live out a godly life in the middle of suffering. That if we lose sight of the fact that Christ is coming back, we're going to sink in the storm. But if we can keep our eyes focused on Christ and we can constantly remind ourselves He is coming back, that becomes for us a buoy in the midst of the chaos. It becomes for us an anchor that we can latch on to that keeps us steady. 
it's such an important piece to understanding this text that I thought it would be prudent for us this morning to focus really solely on the issue of the return of Christ and to sort of dig back into that issue and remind ourselves of what that looks like so that next week we can bounce off of it and capture what James is saying about these characteristics. In order to do that, what I want to do is I want to call your attention back to the Old Testament book of Zechariah, particularly Zechariah chapter 14. We did look at Zechariah somewhat four or five years ago when we did a series on the minor prophets. But I want you to go back to Zechariah chapter 14 because in Zechariah chapter 14, the Old Testament prophet sees from a a, a massive distance of time the coming of the Lord Jesus, the return of Christ. And he lays it out in sort of a prophetic voice. And I want us to look through the eyes of Zechariah at the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, the second coming. And I want us to just sort of refresh in our minds what that's going to be like and what that event is going to look like and what's going to take place when Christ returns. I'm convinced when we capture this and we remember and when we understand it, it's going to have remarkable practical application to how we suffer when suffering comes. Now, the return of Christ speaks to things that are down the road of history yet to be lived and yet to be experienced. And there are many things concerning the end of time that are not clear in the text of Scripture. There are many things that are, in fact, unclear. We have to, in order to build our understanding of what's going to take place at the end of time fully, we have to piece together passages sort of from various parts of the Bible. We're going to piece together the words of the prophets in the Old Testament with the words of Jesus in places like Matthew 24 and 25. We're going to put all that together with statements that Paul makes in his letters in the New Testament. And then we're going to take all of that and sort of put it on the storyboard and and put it alongside the book of Revelation that is concerned with primarily future prophecy. And we're going to build sort of a composite built off of all of that to sort of understand what's happening fully in the end of time. And much of what's written about the end of time is filled with, with challenging imagery. Some of it's meant to be understood very literally, and some of it is meant to be symbolic. And the great challenge of the Bible interpreter is sorting out which is which and what is what. Although there are many things that are unclear about how things are going to play out at the end of time, there are several things that are crystal clear about the end times. And I'll just give them to you sort of as a bullet point list to launch us into Zechariah 14. Some things are very clear, and they are as follows. The world is one day coming to an end. That's clear. This world is not going to go on like it's going forever. It is going to come to an end. Despite what the conventional thinking is in our day, despite what sort of contemporary evolutionary theory teaches us, um, which says that essentially the world and all of its creation is sort of evolving from lesser complexity to more complexity, from, from lesser good to more good, that evolution is taking place and the the bad is being sort of weeded out through history and the good is being brought to the surface, the Bible paints an opposite picture. 
It says not that the world is getting better and better and better as time marches on. It tells us that this world is winding down to a complete halt. That things are going from bad to worse, and one day Christ is going to return and end it all. That is the picture that the Bible paints. The world's going to come to an end one day. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. The world, John says, is passing away. And also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The world is passing away. The world is not going from better, from good to better, to best. It's degenerating from initial, beautiful, perfect creation, from better to worse, to an end. The world is going to come to an end one day. Another thing that's crystal clear is that Christ is coming back. The Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, who lived a perfect life, who died on a cross, was buried and raised on the third day, is going to return. He's going to return. He said it himself in John 14, verse 3. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and I'll take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Christ is going to return. He's going to come back. Beyond that, not only is he going to come back, but his return is going to be visible and it's going to be bodily. In other words, he's going to come back the way he left in a body and it's going to be seen. It's not going to be some sort of invisible return that nobody knows really happened. It's going to be visible and the whole world is going to know what's going down. Acts 1.11, an angel speaks to the disciples who are looking up after the resurrection, excuse me, after the ascension of Christ. And the angel says, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the very same way you've seen him go up into heaven. The way Christ left is the way He's coming back. Visible, bodily. And what else is crystal clear is that when He comes back visibly and bodily, He's going to come to bring both judgment and reward. He's coming to bring judgment and reward. He's coming to bring judgment on a world that has rejected Him, and He's coming to bring reward on those who've loved Him and received Him as Lord and Savior. Acts chapter 17 Verse 30, and following in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He's appointed. And He's given proof to this to all men by raising Him from the dead. The preacher says, look, the resurrection of Jesus is evidence that He's coming back. And when He comes back, He's going to judge the world. He's going to judge the world. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, the Bible tells us, The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants. Rewarding your servants. So Christ is coming back. The world is coming to an end. His return is going to be visible, and it's going to be bodily. And he's coming back to both judge and reward. Those things are crystal clear. They're really inarguable from Scripture. These things are going to happen, and they're sure. And Zechariah chapter 14, he speaks into this, and he gives us sort of 
some meat to put on some of those bones, at least at least a portion of it. We haven't been studying Zechariah, but just so you'll know, he was a priest born to sort of a priestly family. He, he, he prophesied shortly after the Israelites returned from the Babylonian exile. He, was, he and his family were with those who initially came back from the Babylonian exile. And his ministry took place around 538 B.C., um, excuse me, they came back around 538 B.C. His ministry takes place around 520 B.C. And, um, and what you need to understand is the time in which he ministers is a time when God's people are suffering great discouragement. They're, they're, they've come back, but, but their land is in shambles. Their temple is destroyed. They really have nothing. And they're faced with the, the remarkable task of trying to rebuild what all has been lost. And to make matters worse, they're surrounded by enemies on all sides who don't want them to be successful, who are taunting them and making it difficult for them at every single step. And so they're suffering and they're discouraged. And into the mix of that, Zechariah is sent by the Lord to speak to them. And his task from the Lord is to, is to remind them, even though the suffering is great for the moment, God is not absent. God is not absent in the midst of your suffering. Not only is he not absent in the midst of your suffering, but there's a day coming when he's going to make all things that have gone wrong right. He's going to make all the wrong right. And for them particularly, that included rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. But the implications go well beyond that. Now, Zechariah chapter 14 speaks to the ultimate way in which God is going to make all things right. That's going to be at the return of the Lord Jesus. It is a notoriously difficult chapter to sort of understand and interpret. In fact, Martin Luther, um, uh, the great theologian, said this about chapter 14 of Zechariah. He said, here in this chapter, I give up. For I am not sure what the prophet's talking about. That's pretty good when you hear Luther say, I don't know what he's talking about. Who are we to try and say we do? Um, I, I think, I mean, as great as Luther was, there were a couple of things that for which he was short-sighted. He did not fully understand uh, how to understand these prophetic passages that speak to the end time. In Luther's mind and in his understanding, texts like Zechariah 14 and Revelation, these all are, are, are things that in his mind were speaking to issues and things that were fulfilled when Christ first came, not in the second coming. And so it makes sense then when you read Zechariah 14, if you come at it through Luther's eyes, through the idea that all these prophetic passages speak to something that, took, that were fulfilled at the birth of Christ, there's nothing that looks like Zechariah 14 that took place during that period. And thus Luther looks at this and says, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with it. But we don't understand these things that way. We understand that Christ is going to return. And that these prophetic passages like Zechariah 14, the book of Revelation, so many others in the New Testament, speak to us about a day that is yet to come. When Christ will return. When the end of this world as we know it will happen. The Bible speaks of that event as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now there have been lots of days of the Lord... In, in short fashion throughout the history of mankind. But there's coming a singular day of the Lord when the Lord Himself is going to descend and return and put it into the world and make all things right and judge the wicked and reward the righteous. And that is what Zechariah sees from a distance. 
He says in verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil will be taken from you, will be divided in your midst. A day is coming for the Lord. Zechariah says a day is coming for the Lord. Many of the other Bible writers speak to the, they use the phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, a day that's coming for the Lord. Lots of different ways of casting, but it's the same event. It's the return of Christ. There have been smaller days of the Lord in the past. Some of the prophets speak to those things. Like in the prophet Joel's day, there was a a massive locust plague that was coming. And Joel calls that a day of the Lord. It was a day where the judgment of the Lord came in a very acute sort of a way. There have been the exiles in the Old Testament referred to as the day of the Lord. But many times, like in Zechariah 14 in the book of Revelation and also in the New Testament letters, when we hear the day of the Lord, we're talking about the day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord at the end of time. In some sense, all of these small days of the Lord, these small moments of God's acute judgment, have been nothing more than simple, small foretastes of the grand day of the Lord that is yet to come. They've been an appetizer, if you will, and the main course is on its way. This is a theme all throughout the Bible. Isaiah chapter 13, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Jeremiah 46.10, That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, a day to avenge Himself on His foes. Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 3, For the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and following. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 in the New Testament. Paul writes, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Paul says the day of the Lord is coming. Everybody's going to be living life in peace and security and thinking everything is good. And just like a pregnant woman, when, when, when her labor hits out of the blue, the day of the Lord is going to be upon us and there's going to be no escape from it. It's coming. Second Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. It is a theme all throughout Scripture that the day of the Lord is coming. And you see the trend probably already in the text that we've read that all of the the biblical writers who speak of the day of the Lord coming always tell us that that day is near. That it's near. In Matthew 24, we don't have time to sort of walk our way through the whole text, but Jesus speaks in, in, in great detail. In fact, the most detailed statement that He ever makes 
about his return is in Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 to the end. And you can read that for yourself later. But he lays out there sort of some preliminary signs that will take place before the day of the Lord. He talks about things like false prophets and messiahs, many of them that will come. He, he speaks of wars and rumors of wars. He talks about famines and he talks about earthquakes. He says as we get nearer and closer to that day of the Lord, that there's going to be an increased persecution of believers. He says there's going to be a large-scale falling away of people who were previously associated with his church. He says that before that day comes, the gospel is going to be preached to the whole world. The day is coming, the day of the Lord. Today is man's day, if you will. This whole season of history be between the ascension of Christ and His return is sort of this, this moment, this season, where the patience of God is on display. Where sin runs rampant. Where men are free to reject and snub their nose at God and reject Christ and, and blaspheme Him and live in open rebellion against Him. And His patience endures. He doesn't zap every sinner. He doesn't shut down every terrorist. He doesn't, he doesn't immediately judge every corporate thief who steals from their employees. No, for the moment, he's patient. He's patient. In fact, patience is part of his character. And James is going to talk about that <coughs> Excuse me, in chapter 5. But make no mistake about it, my friends. <clears throat> We'd be fools to make the mistake of confusing God's patience with apathy. God is not apathetic about what's going on right now in your life and mine. He is not apathetic about what's going on in the world around us. He is not apathetic about sin and rebellion and injustice. He is simply being patient for the moment. But the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come. And it will come soon. And when it comes, He's going to make all things right. And when the day comes, those who oppose Him, it will be for them a horrifying, horrifying day. For those who have perpetrated evil and injustice on His people... The day of the Lord will be like a horror movie that Hollywood has never made. Listen to some of the descriptions. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9 and following. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And Jeremiah writes, the day of the Lord, the day... Is the day of the Lord God of hosts a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes? Ezekiel 30, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near, a day of clouds, a time of doom. Zephaniah, great day of the Lord is near, a day of wrath, distress, anguish, ruin, and devastation. A great day is on the way, the day of the Lord. Christ is coming back. And for His people, it will be a day of celebration. A day of reward from the one we've served from a distance. 
But for those who have rejected Him, for those who have perpetrated evil in the world, it will be sheer horror. Absolute, unthinkable, unimaginable horror. Zechariah gives us a sense for that, some of the circumstances around it, and a little bit of what it will look like. He talks about a great battle that's going to take place on that day. In verse 2, he says, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And Zechariah sees prophetically down through the tunnel of history, and he sees the great day of the Lord, the return of the Lord. He sees a great battle taking place. He sees armies that have gathered around a central place, the city of Jerusalem. And he sees the people of God surrounded by hostile armies. He sees, when we compare this with Daniel 7 and Revelation 17 in the words of Ezekiel in chapter 38, an army from the west, an army from the north, an army from the south, and an army from the east that, that, that number in the millions have gathered around the people of God who are hunkered down in the city and a battle is taking place. Revelation 19, verse 19 speaks to this. It says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. There's a war that takes place. And the armies have, of the world have gathered to once and for all destroy the people of God and the God who belongs to the people. And we find here the climax of human history. What really began in the Garden of Eden with one man and one woman who rejected the truth given to them by their Creator and chose to sin and rebel against Him. What they set in motion on that particular day finds its full and complete climax on the day of the Lord. When the sin that began in that moment has run full circle throughout the world and throughout the generations, it culminates with the nations of the world gathered around Jerusalem making war against God. In some sense, every sin is a battle cry against the Creator. And so we have a battle. And it's against the people of God who are surrounded in the city. And as this battle begins to rage, we see Zechariah tells us that at least in the initial part of it, it doesn't seem like things are going very well for the people of God. Did you catch that? What did he say about that? He said, The city shall be taken. The houses plundered and women raped. Half the city will go into exile. And the rest of the people will be cut off from the city. It doesn't sound like as the battle rages, things are going to go too well for the people of God. It sounds like, initially, there's going to be an awful lot of pain and an awful lot of suffering. And it's going to look, for a moment, like all hope is lost. Like evil has won. Like the nations of the world who have raised their fists and their armies against God in ultimate and utter rebellion, like they've triumphed and the people of God are going down. By the way, that description of that battle, houses plundered, women raped, half of the city gone into exile. 
We don't have to look very far back in history, even from our day, to see how that takes place in battle. If you look back at some of the news stories from the last five years, at what's taken place in places in the Middle East, at the hands of of armies of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and the kinds of things that have happened to the people who belong to the Lord in the lands where those armies have come through, you see exactly those things that Zechariah saw happening happen. And so they will happen at the end as well. And just when it looks like all hope is lost, when it looks like the suffering is never going to end, when it looks like the people of God are going down, when it looks like evil is going to triumph and sin is going to triumph, there's a ray of hope. A ray of hope. There's a remnant that remains in the city, half of the people. Half of the people remain in the city, and yet they're cut off. They have no way of escape. And then in verse 3 and 4 of Zechariah, chapter 14. This is what Zechariah tells us. He says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. That's when He fights on the day of battle. And on that day His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach Ezal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come. And all the holy ones with Him. I don't know if your imagination can capture what this is going to look like. But it's going to be a moment of great suffering. And it's going to look like all hope is lost. And in the midst of that, when it seems like evil is triumphed, the Lord returns. The Lord returns. The Lord returns and He stands on the Mount of Olives. And it's time He comes. He doesn't come by Himself, does He? He comes with an angelic army. He says, the Lord comes and all the holy ones with Him. The language in that in those verses, verses 3 and 4, that the Lord will go forth and that He will come are military terms. And it tells us that when the Lord returns this time, He is going to return ready and prepared for war. Ready and prepared for battle. Ready and prepared to put an end once and for all to the rebellion of men. And as we see, it's going to be a short battle from that point on. It is such a stark contrast from the first time Christ came. When the first time Christ came, He was born to a virgin in a stable, in an out-of-the-way place in, in Bethlehem. He was born and nobody really noticed. Nobody even really knew except for a few shepherds and, and some magi from the east. He lived in, in relative obscurity for quite some time before He came onto the scene. And He lived a life of humiliation and humility. In fact, when he was attacked, he didn't ever respond in like fashion, did he? Even to the point of death on a cross. But make note, when he comes back this time, it's a whole different story. This time when he returns, he comes with an army, and he comes ready for battle, and he comes ready to win. 
Joel chapter 3, verse 16, Joel sees the same thing prophetically, and he says this, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. Revelation 19, verse 11 and following, John writes, I saw heaven standing open, and there was before me a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will simply speak and strike down the nations. He will tray, treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. I don't know if in your sanctified imagination you can picture that kind of a scene. But I think the reality of it defies our imagination. Truly. It will defy anything that we could even imagine. That somehow the heavens open and the Lord returns. And He returns with a blazing fire. And He returns like these descriptions that we see of Him roaring out of Zion. Coming to the aid of His people. Coming with an army set for battle to end the war and to make all things right. It's just an astounding thing that Zechariah tells us. Literally, he splits the Mount of Olives in half. Did you catch that? The, 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 the remnant of the people of God who are, who are, who are caught in the city, the, the, the Mount of Olives literally splits in half to give them a way of escape. It's amazing. Simply amazing. Pretty awesome when Moses split the Red Sea, right? Or God through Moses split the Red Sea. Who split a mountain when Christ comes back? And then listen as Zechariah describes how the Lord will fight for His people. Frightening. Listen, verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot out of their sockets. And their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall upon them so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, garments, in great abundance, and a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkey, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Again, it's a horrifying picture. That Zechariah sees when the Lord returns. These armies don't stand a chance. When the Lord speaks, they disintegrate standing up. All that's left are their, their gold and their clothes on the ground to be gathered up. As this begins to take place, a sheer panic takes place among the people. They don't know what to do. They start 
fighting each other. Jesus Christ is coming back. The Lord will return. The day of the Lord is coming. And when He comes, it's going to be awesome. And when He comes, there are none who can stand before Him. It may look today to you and me like it perhaps looked to the suffering people in James' day. Like evil is winning. Like those who cheat and rob and steal and terrorize are getting away with it. We might be tempted to say, God, why are you letting all this happen? God, why are you doing something about all of this? God, why are the righteous people suffering so badly when those who perpetrate evil seem to be getting away with it? The answer to that question is, the Lord has done something about it. The Lord is doing something about it. And ultimately, the Lord will do something about it when He returns. In the rest of Zechariah chapter 14, verses 6 through 10, he talks about the sort of the transformation that takes place after he returns and ends that battle. I just want to read that to you and then we'll wrap this up. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall, there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. Everything's going to be different after Christ returns. Everything's going to be different. The Lord is going to return and, and He's going to bless His people in every direction. He will be one king over all the earth. And all the peoples of the world will look to Him and know who He is. There will be no competition for His glory any longer. The whole world will look and see and know what God's people have known forever. That there's only one true God. And that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that He is almighty, all-powerful, and none can stand before Him. So what is the takeaway from all of this? And how does it bring us back to James chapter 5? Well, the takeaway from this is, is thus. When we think about the return of the Lord, even in a short sketch like we've done this morning, we at least can remember this. When Christ returns, it will be the ultimate and final vindication of God. God's justice will finally come. All those who've shaken their fist at God and said, there's evil in this world. God, why don't you do something? You're not who you say you are. You're not good. You're not powerful. They'll see and they'll know that He is good and that He is powerful and He's only been patient. All evil will be dealt with. God's sovereignty will be vindicated. 
Israel would be saved. That's another takeaway. Zechariah 12.10 I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they pierced, they shall mourn as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The nation of Israel who has even right now rejected the Lord Jesus when he returns their eyes will be opened and they'll look on him whom they pierced and they will weep and they will mourn and in Zechariah 13 it says there should be a fountain open for the house of David to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness God will bring Israel full circle back around he'll open their eyes to the truth of who the Lord Jesus really is and they will fall on their faces in repentance before Him. Which is incidentally the only way any person has ever been saved. That their eyes are open to the reality of their sinfulness and to reality that it's their very sin and rebellion that nailed Jesus to the cross and that their only hope is to place their faith in Him and find at His feet mercy and grace to save them. That will be the reality for Israel. And it's the only way that anyone's saved even now. Another takeaway is this. God will finally settle all accounts. God will finally settle all accounts. There will be judgment on the wicked. We look around the world and we see all sorts of evil. We see terrorist atrocities, wars. We see sexual assaults and human trafficking and sin upon sin upon sin. And we see the roots of all of that in our own hearts and we see it on display all around us. And it seems like people get away with it and we wonder why doesn't God intervene. But in that day, God's going to settle all accounts. Every single one of them. Every human being who has ever lived. God will settle the account. a story of a farmer in a Midwestern state who had a terrible hatred for the things of the Lord and for religious things. He would intentionally plow his fields every Sunday when his neighbors were going to church. When October came and he had the, the finest crop that he had ever had before, in fact the best in the entire county, and when the harvest was complete, he placed an ad in the uh, local newspaper and here's what it said. It belittled the Christians for their faith. And it said, Faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper. The response from the Christians in that little community was beautiful. It was quiet and it was polite. When the next edition of the town paper came out, there was a simple small ad and it simply read, God doesn't always settle accounts in October. It was a great reminder that God doesn't always settle His accounts right now. The wicked may prosper for a moment, but God will settle all accounts eventually. And it's that peace that has to captivate our minds and it has to saturate our understanding when we are suffering. Particularly when we are suffering at the hands of evil. 
particularly when we're suffering on the other end of injustice. If we don't remember the day of the Lord, if we don't remember that the Lord is coming back, we will respond in our sinful flesh. But if we can remember there's a day of the Lord that's coming, we'll be able to do what James calls us to do, and we'll see it next week. But what about you this morning? Do you realize that the Lord Jesus is coming back? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never come to that place where you have looked to Him and recognized that you are a sinner who has rebelled against Him and that you are culpable for that sin and that you are accountable for that sin and that one day you will be judged for that sin and your judgment will be an eternal hell apart from Christ. And there is no amount of works, good, bad, or ugly, that you can do to work your way out of that situation. And your only hope is to look on Him against whom you've rebelled and in brokenness over your sin, plead for His mercy. Confess your sin and ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to transform you to forgive you. Offer your life to Him. If you've never done that this morning, then you need to understand that the day of the Lord is coming, and it's coming sooner than you might think. And when that day comes, it'll be too late. There'll be no one who can rescue you from what's to come. From the horror that's to come. But the day of salvation is today. If you're a believer here in the Lord Jesus Christ, I ask you, have you forgotten that the day of the Lord is on the way? Have you forgotten that the Lord is coming back? Have you begun to just live your life sort of on autopilot as though things don't matter? Have you forgotten that everything we do matters and that Christ is coming back and we will stand before Him? What about you if you're suffering this morning? You're tempted to think maybe God has abandoned you. Maybe God's out to lunch. Maybe He isn't paying attention. Maybe it doesn't pay to be a Christian if it means you have to deal with this kind of pain. You're asking questions like, God, where are you? Why haven't you fixed this? Why haven't you given me a way of escape? Why am I hurting? Why am I suffering? Why doesn't this end? You find yourself saying, I try to be good. I go to church. I do Christian things. Why, why am I getting this in return? Remember, the day of the Lord is coming. And when He comes, He'll settle all accounts. He'll make all things right. He is not absent. He is not unconcerned. He knows and He sees. He is with you in the pain and He will make it right. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we tend to think of You as little Jesus, meek and mild. And true, you are one who modeled before us humility and patience. But you will not model that forever. We pray, Lord, that somehow in our minds you would allow us to capture the reality of these texts that we've read this morning. That you are coming back. And when you come back, you are going to be coming back in a way that's unlike anything we could ever imagine.
that when you come back, you will come back with eyes ablaze. And you will come back with ferocity. And you will come back as a warrior. And you will come to put an end to sin and rebellion once and for all. And in that day, there will be no mercy for those who have rebelled. Only destruction and judgment. And in that day, there will be among your people celebration and joy because the pain and suffering has come to an end. And for eternity, there will be nothing but your reward. The glory of heaven. The joy of your presence forever. And pleasures at your right hand forevermore. Oh Lord Jesus, captivate our minds with this vision of you that it might be for us a sure and a steady anchor when life here is hard, when we're tempted to complain, when we want to be impatient and we want to give up. Help us to look forward to your return. For those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would run to you today while there's still time. And we pray these things for your sake. Amen. If you don't know what it means to know Jesus and you'd like to know, I'm in the back of the room while we sing this last song. Feel free to step out and I'd love to talk with you, pray with you. If you just want to know more about what you've heard today, I'm available and others are available to talk with you. Feel free to come speak with us if you'd like. Let's stand and sing 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 like.